0: Welcome to Busy soap Soba, Busy Livin' Soba, Busy Living Soba. Hi Carter, how are you today?
1: I'm well, how are you?
0: As you can see, I'm really well. It's, I have a couple hours on you because you know I'm on the East Coast.
1: Oh right, yeah, I'm uh, I started the day pretty early. Uh, I have two little kids and uh, of course they make sure that daddy gets up at six thirty, seven in the morning, so. We're getting our day going here
0: it's awesome isn't it it's so great to be alive today
1: it is it is it's, it's, that's 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 an understatement certainly so it's great to be healthy and great to still feel even though with all of this isolation that that we have a sense of purpose that's yeah, a, there's that's some big, major
0: gratitude right
1: Yeah. A lot of gratitude. Uh, You know, this is, of course, a very unique time. It's not something that any of us were prepared for, but there are some silver linings in it that I have realized. One of which is being able to spend a lot more time with my family. And I think that my relationship with my two kids and I have a, a son who's three and a daughter who's six is really we've been able to go really deep with stuff that normally when I'm away during the day, I'm not really involved in their interactions, Uh, all the small little minute decisions and interactions that they have during a day. And it's really been a blessing. It's really been wonderful. And, uh, this time has have, has provided me the opportunity to to do a lot of things that that I wouldn't normally do with them, so so that's one of the silver linings I think.
0: For sure, it's like that break that we've all wanted, like that time to stop and spell and smell the roses, as they say. And yeah. that it's it's we never ever thought that it was going to be maybe forced on us the way it kind of was, but you know, in the end, it's been such an awesome awesome thing. And so will you tell us what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now? Because our listeners always love to hear, you know, what, how did you finally get there? And so go ahead and tell us your story.
1: Sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown, had a storybook childhood as, uh, it's how I remember it at least, up until a certain point. And on the outside, everything looked wonderful. We had a big house. My parents were affluent. They were successful. They were socialites in DC. I grew up with all the advantages one could, uh, except really the fact that my parents were very absent in my life. And my father was always traveling for work. My mother was busy doing her socializing and being involved in the arts in Washington. And she also was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So that certainly didn't allow me to connect with her on an emotional level, which I was really looking for as a child. So I, I grew up feeling um, a bit alone. And that was difficult. We had a nanny that basically brought me up. And I loved her dearly and uh, she was really, I think of her uh, as as one of my two mothers, my mother being the first and and my nanny being one. But she was the only one who really instilled upon me that I was valuable and that I was special. And so I grew up with sort of this feeling, everyone looked at our family and said, oh my gosh, they have it all. but in essence, the things that we didn't have were the things that I wanted most, which were attention and love. And, and so from a very early age, I started to feel, feel different, feel sad, feel confused about who I was and what my role was in the world. And at about age 11, when my parents, the, um, the, the tension between my parents escalated a lot and they ultimately ended up getting a divorce when I was about 12. And and during that time, I had my first real experience with addiction, which was I started to um, restrict the amount of food that I put Mm -hmm. into my body. Mm -hmm. So it became an obsessive compulsive disorder for me, um, starting at about 11 or 12. And it was really how I soothed myself and how I coped with this family that was splintering apart in front of me. And there was a lot of yelling in our house, and my mother was constantly drunk and very upset and histrionic. and and so I, I went through a lot of that time in my age. And so I' began medicating um, with 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 food. That was the first time. and and that addiction and that disorder uh, followed me for the next decade. Um, Now I had an older brother at the time as well uh, who was 15 months older and he was an amazing guy. I, I think of him as sort of a heroic figure in my life, but he was definitely in the fast crowd and he liked to push the envelope. And so he started drinking pretty early and experimenting with pot Uh, you know, when we were just kids. And so I would follow him around and he would give me a joint and I would smoke it and be with his older friends. And I thought that I was cool. And so by the time I was 12 or 13, I had been drinking and, and smoking weed fairly, you know, not regularly, not every day, but certainly it was a part of my life. And I went off to boarding school and that was the first time really in my life that I truly felt accepted. And I had this group of friends, this amazing group of friends from New York City, I went to a boarding school up in New England. And, I, and they were uh, leaps and bounds ahead of, I, of me in regards to trying substances and, and just being um, a lot more knowledgeable about that world. And I instantly attached myself to them And we began experimenting with mushrooms and with acid, and we smoked a lot of pot and we did cocaine whenever we could get our hands on it. And this is when I was sort of 14, 15, and 16 years old. So I think of my own children now and I think, wow, um, the there's no way that that I would allow them to get away with that sort of thing. But back in the 80s, I think parents really had a different way of bringing up children and at least in my household and in all of their households because I used to go visit them in New York we were unsupervised there was just no one around they were like yeah here's you know some money go get some food and we'll see you when we see it was sort of the attitude and fortunately none of us got really hurt or anything like that during this period but but we started experimenting and drugs certainly were a, a big part of my teenage years. Uh, we listened to the Grateful Dead. We followed the Grateful Dead. We went and saw them anytime we could. And we had cars and we would drive to each other's um, country houses and stay there unsupervised for weekends. And it was really kind of a, an amazing time. Um, and the trajectory really of my addiction is that I went to college and I didn't really want to be there. I felt disillusioned. I didn't feel like I was learning a lot. And I joined a fraternity. And this fraternity was just all about drinking. And uh, they had a keg on tap 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You could drink anytime you wanted to. We had parties. And and so that was really just kind of four years of, of. I think of it as, um really my parents not spending their money wisely (laughs) because we were just doing a lot of drinking and and um when i graduated i moved to new york city and i moved downtown i lived down in greenwich village and then lived in soho and i began to make friends with a lot of folks that were in the entertainment crowd and that was really exciting for me. I had never met people like this who were writing plays and putting on plays and acting in them and directing movies. And there was this real sort of incredible energetic sense that we were these invincible 20-somethings. And of course, that led to us staying out all night. And that was when cocaine really was introduced into my life. And It was the nineties in downtown New York and everyone had Coke. It was just around and you would go to parties. And of course my appetite for it really grew and became something that my other friends weren't really dealing with. They could do it and go about their business and, and work on their projects. And I really just started to have an appetite for it. And began to do it more and more. I began to do it alone. I did it in secret. And I feel like there was a lot of trauma that of course happened to me in my early life and I was running away from it. I didn't want to face it. And so cocaine became sort of a medicine for me. It was how I dysfunctionally uh, soothed myself. And it became a problem and people started to notice. And I have two younger sisters and they saw me and they said, you know, we we think you should slow down. And my parents were, of course, oblivious. But so, in a in the late 90s, I sold my apartment in New York City and I moved to Los Angeles. And I thought, this is going to be really good for me. I'm going to do yoga on the beach. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to eat macrobiotic food. I'm going to Learn how to really be spiritual and take care of myself. That was my fantasy of what Los Angeles was, anyway. And uh, I drove cross country, arrived in Hollywood, uh, rented this bungalow up in Beachwood Canyon. And within a matter of months, I had found all of the folks in Beachwood Canyon that were doing drugs and partying. And it just got worse and worse for me. And, um, and a friend of mine who was a writer, Um, was experimenting with heroin and with crack cocaine Mm. and I remember thinking to myself I'm not doing crack cocaine I mean that is not a drug that I would ever even go close to or heroin I mean those are just sort of a line in the sand that I had drawn and I would never try them or if I did try them I would just do them once to just have the experience and and I ended up trying them, and um that's when really everything changed for me because fairly soon after I was doing them as much as I could, and i um, of course, encapsulated myself with a small little group of people who were doing the same thing, and so we were all enabling each other, and within a year, I had really uh, transformed psychologically into someone who is very different uh, I was extremely anxious and paranoid I was very unhealthy I had lost a lot of weight there were no prospects at all for me to continue a job in entertainment in, in any capacity I was trying to set up projects and be a producer in Hollywood and and um, I became psychotic I started to imagine things. I became delusional. I started to see things. I thought that I was being bugged by the FBI and that I was being followed by people. And my friends, even the ones that were in the party crowd, um, started to keep their distance from me, saying, you know, this guy has really gone off the rails. And um, so I, Ultimately, my my sisters and my mother showed up at my door one day and they said, Time for you to get some help. You need to go to rehab. And at that point, I had exhausted all of my resources. I was getting evicted from my apartment. I just I had nowhere to turn and I said, Okay, you know, I'll do this. Not really wanting to go, not really wanting to do it. And I went to a place in West LA called Promises, mm-hmm. and I was there for 30 days. And I think of it as I, I I write about it as sort of like a, a month-long nap. I uh I just went to these groups and it was um <clears throat> people that were friendly and nice and it, it was basically just a a break from the drugs. And I felt myself getting strong again or stronger anyway and getting healthier and resigned myself that I when I got out I was going to go to AA and I was going to be part of the community and and uh, I moved to the west side of Los Angeles to Venice California when I got out and um, I'd, um, I've written a book it's a memoir called Lost in Ghost Town and the it's out right now yes there it is <laughs> and the the book is really about the year that i spent in venice and uh, venice there's a particular neighborhood in venice called ghost town that's what the addicts called it because there were so many ghosts walking the streets there were so many addicts and people who had died and their ghosts were walking the streets and so they called it ghost town and it was the oakwood neighborhood of venice and venice back then you have to remember was nothing like it is today. Google and Snapchat and has moved in and the neighborhood is really gentrified and Abbot Kinney looks like Bleecker Street. It has all of these incredible little stores on it and it was nothing like that. It was, there were a couple restaurants and a couple junk stores and a liquor store and that was it on Abbott Kinney and, and the neighborhood was run by the gang, the Shoreline Crips, and they had a strong presence there. And it was really the epicenter of drug activity on the west side of Los Angeles. I had no idea when I moved there that that was what was going on. But soon after I moved there, I was walking up the street and this woman offered to sell me crack. And I thought to myself, oh my God. And I had a few months sober at that point and thought to myself, well, maybe I'll just do it one more time and no one will know. And I'd been going to AA at that time and I had a sponsor and everything, but I just didn't have the defenses to say no to somebody directly in front of me. And so I bought some and essentially uh, was high for the for the next year of my life, um, for a lot of the year. And um, I pretty much lost everything. I um, was once again getting evicted from my apartment I was actually homeless for a week or two. I slept on the beach. Um, my family wasn't speaking to me. I didn't have a bank account. Didn't have any money, didn't have a computer or a phone. But the one thing that I did have was a, was a car, this old beat up car. And because of that car, I was introduced to this drug dealer in ghost town who needed a driver. And, uh, he was a former gang member, was this really interesting uh, man who became my friend. We became good friends and he was self-educated and book smart and kind and spiritual. And he lived with his grandmother and they in, invited me into their home and treated me like one of their own. And for the first time in my life, I really felt this level of love and acceptance from a family that I had so craved and and um, and meanwhile uh, the the character is name his his name is Flynn who was my friend and he and I were we, we became dealers uh, he was a dealer and I was his wingman and we delivered drugs to a lot of different places on the West side of Los Angeles and went on drug runs down to the border and got into some very scary situations. And, but, um, the fact that he really accepted me and became like a brother to me and his grandmother took me in, uh, really started this, uh, feeling in me that I was valuable again and that deep down that I was good and that these people could recognize that in me and that started the process of me ultimately wanting to get sober and um, I narrowly escaped Venice after being there for a year with my life and I um, went back to Massachusetts where we had a farm and within about six months I was ready to go back to treatment. And, um, and that was the beginning of my sobriety. And I went to two different treatment centers, one in Arizona called The Meadows and, and one in Santa Fe, New Mexico called The Life Healing Center and I stayed for five months. And when I got out, I realized that there, I shouldn't go back to Los Angeles because it just wasn't a safe environment for me. So I stayed there and I didn't have any money. My family had cut me off. Um, I didn't have winter clothes and it was the dead of winter. I got this sublet uh, up in the mountains for $300 a month that came with a rickety old 10 speed bike. And so I was riding around Santa Fe, New Mexico and zero degree weather, dropping off resumes, trying to get a job. And that's how I started my sobriety. I really had nothing and um, got a job as a waiter, started waiting tables. And, and during that time, I had been encouraged by some of the counselors at the treatment center to apply to this graduate school. And I just really didn't have much else going on in my life. And I thought, well, these people have inspired me so much and helped me so much that this could be a really cool thing to do, a real cool vocation. and. So, I applied, ended up getting in. I took out student loans. I worked two jobs. And for the next three and a half years, I studied and I I got my master's degree in psychology. And at that time, when I was about four years sober, I decided that I was going to come back to Los Angeles and give it a try out here in a very different way. And I got back out here. I decided to apply to a doctoral program uh, of this really amazing school. And um, I. Um, could you hold on a second? I'm so sorry. Something, the TV. Do I, want I don't care. I can't do it right head. now. I can't do it right now. You need to talk to mommy. Mom. Did you pick
0: that up? <laughs> I have three, I get it. I totally get it. I have three, we're human. What are we gonna do? I totally get it. Mine are just grown now.
1: Um. So in any case, I uh, applied to a, a school called Pacifica Graduate Institute up in Santa Barbara. And I uh, spent the next six years of my life up there and during that time I got a job working at a treatment center up in Malibu as a therapist and I worked there for five years and I started a private practice during that time as well and so I was working at the treatment center and seeing some folks in private practice and I was uh, in school so it was a very very busy time in my life. And there were many times that, that I thought, there's no way that I can finish this program. It's just too much. After three years of school, you have to write a dissertation, which took about three and a half years. And I just, it's very technical and, and you have to format it in a certain way with lots of footnotes. And, and I just remember being in the, in the midst of that and saying to myself, there's no way. This is too, too much of a Herculean, Herculean effort. But I ended up finishing it. And um, I had reconnected with an old, um, an, an old flame at that time that I hadn't seen in about 20 years. And the two of us started a relationship, ended up getting married. And we had our first child while I was in the midst of my dissertation. So that was sort of an added uh, responsibility. And um, But my daughter was one and a half and she got to come up and see me uh, receive my doctorate, which was really a wonderful defining moment in my life. And she has the medal and she has it hung on her bulletin board downstairs and it's a very precious thing for her. And um, since then, I have focused really on my private practice here in Los Angeles. I work with people certainly that are struggling with addiction, but also with folks that have anxiety and depression or um, different situations in their life that are having hard times in relationships. I see a lot of couples And, and I have, found this voice deep within me that, um, that I always knew was there. And, but now it has a platform and I feel so blessed and honored to be working with so many people and, and to be a part of their life story now to help shape their life story and work really from my own wounding, from my own experience, uh, because I've been through a lot. And uh, what I've found, interestingly enough, and I'm writing a second book about this right now, is that in most cases, the folks that I work with, even if they don't identify as addicts, that they have some addictive tendencies in their life. And so the next book that I'm writing is called We're All Addicts. And it's about the archetypal nature and the universal nature of addiction about how we medicate with our phones, or with work, or with exercise, or with food, or with anger, and how this thread of addiction really connects all of us together. And so that's what the next book is about.
0: Well, Carter, for one, thank you so much for telling us your story because there's so many people that are like, oh, this doesn't happen to like this only happens to this sort of type of person. It doesn't happen to this type of person when in fact, this disease hits everyone. It doesn't matter where you came from. I have a very similar background to you. Very, it's kind of crazy. It's really Mm. kind of crazy. I mean, we should talk afterwards about it, but it's, but um, realizing that we don't have to stay in that cycle and you finding that love of someone else helped you fall in love with you right
1: yeah of course it's just amazing exactly what happened yeah
0: and it was the scariest thing for me to be an alcoholic and an addict right that's the last thing in the world you wanted to be because it's like oh my god that means my life is going to be over when in fact it sounded like i mean if you saw from my point of view like watching your story when you talked about the positive like what it is like now and getting Rekindling with your wife—it's like your lights come on, and you can just see the joy when you're yeah. talking about when back in the days in Venice. You're kind of like, oh, you can see it's still, yeah. but it's so amazing that look at you today, and you're helping people. Yeah. I have to say, I did start your book,
1: mm. and
0: I've loved it so far. I love the way it's written, and it's just—I'm loving it thank so far. And meeting your you. friend Flynn's grandmother and just sitting in the yeah. kitchen—I love that. That's—I, it's—I'm I, not going to lie—that's as far as I've gotten, but it's one it's wonderful. And I'm really, really happy for you. And I'm going to have a link for the book on our yeah. podcast. And you okay. so amazing. And if, That's you know, true. the only reason I started this crazy podcast is just to help one person, you know, yeah. the stigma is so, I mean, I still think it's bad, you know, nobody mm-hmm. still nobody wants to go and say, Oh my gosh, I'm an alcoholic. Help me.
1: Right. Right. You're absolutely right. Interestingly enough, um, the, uh, I had met my wife when I was 25 and we had had a few lost weekends together and it it didn't end very well. And I didn't treat her very well at that time. I I was certainly struggling with my own demons and in my addiction and very self-centered. And so when I reconnected her with her 17 years later, it was me calling her to make an amends. Oh. And so that started the process and I reached out to her, she took my call and we talked for a few hours and I made an amends to her. And then a few months later I was in New York city where she was living and took her out to lunch and that was it. And that was the beginning. So there's really incredible power, uh, healing power, that that exists in the amends process, so.
0: Lots of hope, right? Lots, Lots of, hope. of hope, so much hope, which is yeah. what I wanna share with everybody, that I know that it seems like, oh my gosh, I can't do this, it's too hard, my life is gonna be over, I'm never gonna have those relations, I'm just gonna to have to go live like a hermit, but in fact, it opens your world so much.
1: Yeah, I have so many great friends today that are, some of them are sober, some of them are not. My wife is not sober, she drinks wine, doesn't bother me. I'm 15 years sober now. So I feel like I'm, of course I have to still be vigilant and, but I'm on the other side of it. And what's really worked for me is to develop a spiritual practice. And that is something that's evolved over the years. But every morning I pray and I meditate and I ground myself and I have some me time and that really informs my day. And I feel centered when I do that. And, uh, and also just being connected still, I'm connected to a lot of people that are in recovery and they're not dull people. These are really incredibly colorful, wonderful, funny people. They make me laugh all the time. We're still as crazy as we ever were. It's just, we're not putting drugs or alcohol into our body, but, uh, we laugh just as hard. We have just as much fun and the friendships are just deeper and they're, Um, They're better. And um, so if you're thinking, oh my God, my life is going to be terrible. I'm not going to, I'm going to have to break all my friendships. Well, you might lose a few friendships. That's true, but you'll make new ones. And, um, you know, I was on the streets homeless. And now I have a PhD in psychology. And it's possible. It totally is. You can do it. You can totally do it. Took some hard work, but I'm on the other side of it now. And, I'm so, so grateful. And so doesn't matter how far you've fallen or how deep you are in the hole. You can always climb yourself, climb up out of it. And um, ha- and there's a beautiful life waiting for you on the other side.
0: So. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you, Carter. Thank you so, so much. Well, when you write the next book, will you come back on?
1: Of course I will.
0: Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. I'd love it. All right. Thanks so much. And until next time, everybody, keep getting busy living soba. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you.